What's up, horror fans? Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Confessions of a Final Girl. Hello, everyone. I hope your week is going well. Welcome to my audio blog. I am Molly, and before we jump into tonight's topic, which is Prom Night from 1980, I have a little confession to make. You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. During the Fright Night discussion in my last entry, I mentioned Billy Cole, Jerry's housemate, and I was trying to remember what a good word is to describe like a vampire's slave. Vampires are not my area of expertise, and I was so proud of myself because I was like, oh God, that's at the tip of my tongue. I don't want to Google it, and I was just about to type it into the search engine when it hit me, the word fledgling popped into my head. And I was like, yes, that's it. It's fledgling. Absolutely. 100%. Billy Cole is a fledgling. Um, yeah, I was wrong. That's, that's very much the wrong word. The word I was looking for was thrall. I was so happy that I didn't have to Google it, but, but I, I should have Googled it. So a fledgling is a baby vampire, or as Naja from what we do in the shadows would call a stupid vampire baby. And thrall is a word that you could really use to describe anyone captivated by someone. So really, even though thrall was the word that I was searching for, it still doesn't entirely cover Billy Cole. So I did look it up just to kind of see what some other fan theories about what Billy is might be. And a lot of people seem to think he was a vampire, but it was a very specific kind of vampire that sort of ranked below the kind of vampire that Jerry was. Ultimately, I don't think we're going to find the correct word to describe Billy Cole, but I apologize for excitedly proclaiming that the word was fledgling. You just shut up now, my stupid little baby. Okay. Secondly, before I dive into the movie, I would like to figuratively jump up and down for a second because I just saw the trailer for Zombieland 2 Double Tap. I am so much happier about this movie than I ever would have thought. The first one is so great, and um, I'm not always the biggest fan of sequels anymore. Obviously, there are a lot of films from the past that were given multiple sequels that I really like, but now it's most of the time it just seems like an excuse for them to just drive a beloved story and, and the characters there into the ground. But man, it was so, I'm so pumped. It was a really, it was a great trailer and it had some exciting things in it. I really like that the entire main cast has come back. Had they not come back, I don't know that I would be nearly as excited about the film. It was great to see them all again. There was a little bit of political commentary that I appreciated um, and they are definitely referencing the first one. There's a handful of references to the first film just in the trailer alone, but I think that's actually kind of a smart move for marketing. I hope that the film is not just a bunch of recycled jokes from the first film. That's my my biggest concern. And I think that's often the case with a lot of sequels, particularly when it's a sequel to a comedy. I think referencing your uh, the original film is, is just a very popular thing to do, and, and it can be done way too much. And so I'm hoping they don't do that. It does seem that the reception of the trailer so far has been really positive, um, and that's exciting. The film's coming out on October 18th, and I cannot wait. I don't go to the theater much anymore, primarily just due to the expense, and also because the movie theater experience has changed quite a bit uh, from the experience that I came to know and love from going to the movies uh, for decades. And so I just, I, I don't know, going to the theater doesn't really mean as much to me as it used to, or do as much for me, but I will definitely be seeing Zombieland 2 Double Tap in the theater. It's really, it's really exciting. I haven't cried like that since Titanic. 
I'm also pleased to announce the introduction of a new segment for the audio blog, which is class superlatives. So be sure to stay tuned until the end of the entry for those, as well as information on how you, anyone who may be listening to this out there in the world, can get involved in these discussions. And lastly, if you have not seen Prom Night from 1980, I actually encourage you to just turn this audio blog off, just stop listening, and and go watch it, because I'm about to spoil the entire film. All right, Prom Night, released in 1980, July 18th, 1980 to be specific, which means that around this same time next year, Prom Night will be celebrating its 40th anniversary, which is just crazy. It's crazy. I wasn't born yet when Prom Night was released. I was born three years later. But I do remember that the first time I saw the film was on its 20th anniversary. I can't remember what network was airing it, but I I just vividly remember sitting on the floor in my living room watching Prom Night and thinking, oh my God, Leslie Nielsen. He's what I remember the most about when I first saw the film because I had never seen Leslie Nielsen in a dramatic role. This was my first experience with that. Um... And I was just, I was enraptured. And also, of course, at that age, I was just jumping all over anything that Jamie Lee Curtis was in. I still do that. So it's just, it's crazy to me that we're coming up on 40 years. The film was directed by Paul Lynch. Um, A lot of what I have seen from Paul Lynch has been television. He's done episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, as well as the RoboCop TV series, Outer Limits and Sliders. He's done a lot of TV work. And I think he did a great job directing this film, especially given that they shot it in 24 days. (laughs) Um, Just with what they were working with, with the budget and the time constraint, I just think that it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but it was definitely a much better film than it could have been. The film was produced by Simcom Limited, which was founded by a guy named Peter Simpson, who also produced uh, the sequel to Prom Night, which is Prom Night 2 Hello, Mary Lou, which is also, I think, a great movie. Uh, the film was written by a man named William Gray, who was also sort of part of Paul Lynch's kind of team at that time in his life. They worked on a couple of other films together, neither of which I've seen, but after looking them up, I'm particularly interested in seeing Humongous. It seems kind of like, like a teen slasher movie with a little bit of like the island of Dr. Moreau thrown into it, which I think just kind of seemed kind of seemed neat. And I'll be I'll be talking quite a bit about it today that I feel that one of this film's greatest strengths and at the same time one of its greatest weaknesses is the writing. I'm a little torn about it. Um, but the parts that were written well in my opinion were written very very well. Definitely thumbs up to William Gray there. A lot of people compare Prom Night to Friday the 13th, which I think is fair because this movie, which as I mentioned was shot in only 24 days, it was released two months after Friday the 13th. So, I mean, one could definitely say like Friday the 13th comes out, somebody sees it and says, oh, that's great, we gotta do that. But apart from the fact that it is a slasher film with teenagers in it, it really doesn't have a whole lot in common with Friday the 13th. Evidently, Prom Night did actually get better reviews than Friday the 13th across the board. Like, people just liked prom night better uh, but uh, I mean obviously Friday turned out to be a much bigger hit in the end and the other film that I see prom night compared to the most is Carrie which uh, makes a little bit more sense to me simply because Carrie is a revenge story that you know, comes to a climax at the prom and the same is absolutely true of prom night but again apart from that it's really also not that similar. There's a lot of very unique and original content in prom night. The prom is just a really fun place to get murdered. I'll remember this night for the rest of my life. While I think that the comparisons to both Friday the 13th and Carrie are fair, I also think that they're not necessarily fair, (laughs) if that makes sense. 
I do think that Prom Night is its own film. And it certainly has one advantage over both Friday and Carrie in that it does feature Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, by this point, Jamie Lee Curtis had already appeared in uh, both Halloween and The Fog. And later the same year, she would appear in what is my personal favorite film of hers from the 1980s, Terror Train. So she hadn't done that one yet, but she had done Halloween and The Fog. One of my favorite bits of trivia about Prom Night is that Paul Lynch was having a very hard time acquiring financing for this film until they got Jamie. So thank you, Jamie Lee Curtis, for, for being you. The film opens with a still reflection of an abandoned building in a broken mirror. I'm a big fan of the opening shot of Prom Night. So you have this group of kids playing hide and seek in this abandoned building, and I, it's the weirdest game of hide and seek I've ever seen. Killers are coming! Killers are coming! Killers are coming! It's downright creepy, man. While this is going on, another young girl around their age, Kim, is walking home from school, presumably with her younger brother and sister. And her brother and sister, Robin and Alex, they're wearing matching striped turtlenecks. This is important because it is the only clear indication that we ever get in the film that Alex and Robin are twins. There is some deleted content where later their parents are visiting a psychiatrist and they actually talk about the fact that they were twins, but obviously that stuff was deleted. So so the only real indication we get that they're twins is right here in this moment. So Kim and the kids see them playing. We never get really to find out if Kim would have joined in the game or not because immediately she remembers that she's about to be played by Jamie Lee Curtis and she says, Where's my geography book? So she forgot her geography book at school. She tells the kids she has to go back for it and leaves them to walk home alone. And Robin starts to look sort of longingly at the building and Alex is like, they don't want you in the game. You're too young. Let's just go. But she wants to go in. So Alex leaves her there as well. And that's when our opening credits begin. I really like the music that we have here. It sets a really ominous tone that lets the audience know that something bad is about to happen. Robin just keeps cautiously going in toward the building. Obviously, she wants to play with these kids, but she probably agrees with Alex that they're not going to want her to play. And she might also be a little scared of the building. She runs into a room where another kid, Kelly, is hiding. But Kelly just ghosts her because she doesn't want to give away her hiding spot because this is high stakes hide and seek. So Robin leaves that room, runs into Wendy. Now, Wendy, she just, even though Robin is not been a part of the game. I'm going to guess that they know each other from school, but she just immediately is like, kill. So she just kind of includes Robin in the game immediately, but it freaks Robin out. She then turns around and runs off. Wendy finds Kelly, who was like right there where Robin was. Robin runs into Nick. He's like, oh, hey, I found somebody. You can decide that you don't want to hide anymore and you can just sort of turn coat on someone else and become one of the killers. It's a twist to the rules of the game that just made me give up on trying to figure out the rules altogether. So now everybody has been found and they're all coming for Robin. And they just are chanting the word kill over and over again uh, while they chase her all over the building until they finally have her backed up at the end of a hallway where there's a window that she kind of climbs up onto. And of course, inevitably, she backs up so far into the window that she falls and bursts through the glass, falls out of the building and lands on the broken mirror from the opening shot. So that's how prom night begins. We have like an I know what you did last summer situation where all of the kids are really terrified of punishment for what they've just done to Robin. And Wendy, as kind of the ringleader, you know, says, let's just never talk about this again. They do the whole we'll take this to our graves oath and they haul ass out of there because they're garbage children. 
Interesting side note, though. The young, the kid who plays young Nick here, his name is Brock Simpson. He was actually um, the son of Peter Simpson, who produced the film, and he's actually the only actor to appear in all of the prom night movies. And he's a cool, he's a good kid. I thought that he was, you know, I mean, for being the producer's son, he was, he was actually, I think, one of the more interesting children. So. Everybody runs off. We get a slow motion shot of a pane falling out of the window right next to the one where Robin fell through and a giant shard of glass falls out of the window. And then we get a close up shot of Robin who's now got a lot more blood on her than she did when she first fell. And this is where I believe personally that Robin dies and we hear footsteps approaching and someone casts like a shadow over her. And the next shot that we see is of Leslie Nielsen. Mr. Hammond is his name and he was Robin's father and he's staring out through the now empty empty window frame of the building. This is where we kind of learn a little bit about the police discovering Robin's body and that they believe that Robin was uh, most likely a victim of sexual assault and that they know who did it. Then a police car pulls up uh, and lets out an equally distressed looking Mrs. Hammond out of the back seat. And then the scene does this nice transition through the ambulance doors, like as the ambulance doors close. And now we see Robin's headstone six years later. The six years later thing suggests that the kids were indeed like 11 or 12 years old when this incident occurred occurred and uh, they're all now high school seniors. We see Robin's mother, who's played by Antoinette Bauer. I really enjoy Antoinette Bauer as Mrs. Hammond in this movie, and I don't feel that we get nearly enough of her. So she's there putting flowers on Robin's grave, and uh, Mr. Hammond is standing there quietly behind her. There's no music right now. It's just the sound of birds chirping in the way that birds chirp, like in the very early morning hours, which I thought was a great choice. And then we also see Kim, who is now played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and Alex, played by Michael Tuff. And they have a really nice rapport together, Kim and Alex. As brother and sister, I really like them. I thought that these two actors had great chemistry and I thought that the dialogue between them was always written very well. The Hammonds are my favorite thing about prom night. Kim and Alex go with their dad to school in his banana yellow station wagon, which is like an immediate reminder that this is a film from 1980. It's fabulous. And they all go in together. We soon learn that their dad is also the principal of Hamilton High School. On the way in, uh, Mr. Hammond says hello to the janitor or the groundskeeper for the school. His name is Mr. Sykes. And this is the introduction of the first of, well, I guess it's not actually the first red herring in the film. There are several red herrings in this movie. And Mr. Sykes, I guess you could say is kind of the second one that we're introduced to. But he is the most obvious red herring of the film. And he's holding this like electric hedge trimmer up beside him in a way that definitely feels a little serial killery. His face sort of falls into an expression that actually looks just a little bit more awkward than anything else. So after we meet Sykes outside of the school and everybody's filed in to start, you know, the learning of things, uh, we cut to the first in a series of close-up shots of a rotary phone and uh, like a pencil and paper, all backed by more of that orchestral music from the opening scene and the camera kind of pans up the length of the phone cord and we don't see who's dialing. It's all very, very, these very tight shots. We do see that the phone rings uh, in a cutaway to Jude's house where she's getting ready to go to school. I am a complete sucker for the use of telephones in horror films. I love everything about it. Black Christmas, Scream, New Year's Evil, 976 Evil. I love all of those films. Something about using phones to scare people just like speaks to me. Har har. That being said, the, the phone calls in Prom Night don't really do it for me the way that they normally do in other films. These phone calls make very little sense. Because I feel like if the killer was going to call everybody on the morning of their deaths. They probably should have made like more direct references to the incident 
for which they're about to be murdered. So I'm just gonna come right out and say it. Alex is the killer. Alex is obviously the killer in Prom Night. Now you have such a long introductory sequence, like the one in this film, where these kids are saying like over and over again, the killer's gonna get you. And then it becomes this revenge story where Alex is wanting to avenge his sister's death and kill all those kids that were a part of that game. You would think that what he would say over the phone is the killer's gonna get you you know? But because he doesn't say anything like that, what we end up getting are these vague things that don't actually instill fear in almost any of the kids at all. Hello? Jude? Yes? Can you come out to play tonight? Given Alex's motivation, it just seems to make very little sense to me that he would have even warned them at all. And if he would have warned them, he would have done so in a way that let them know that what was happening was because of Robin's death. Either way, Jude gets a call from Alex. High School Jude is played by Joy Thompson, who I think is just a joy. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a really dumb thing to say, but it's true. I just really like her. I thought that she brought a real likability to the character of Jude. She's very warm and genuine, and I just, I really enjoyed her performance in this movie. The killer says, you know, do you want to come out and play? To which she responds by kind of chuckling and hanging up because she doesn't, it doesn't sound like a really even a threat. It just sounds like an obscene phone call and she doesn't get scared or, or even take it seriously. And this is where we meet my, my personal favorite character in the film, Seymour Crane, aka Slick, played by Sheldon Rabowski. So Jude's walking to school, having an apple for breakfast on the go, when this like poster child for the 80s idea of what a nerd was rolls up next to her in a mostly windowless van and offers her a ride. They uh, call me Slick. <laughs> I can see why. He's wearing oversized glasses, a white track jacket, and he has this like epic curly mop top. He's grinning like an idiot in the most endearing way, and it works. It all works. They partake in this like little witty back and forth and Jude just climbs right into his van and drives her to, and he drives her to school. Normally, if a girl who's obviously a victim in a horror film got into a windowless van with a stranger, I would be so angry, but I, I can't even blame Jude. Slick is just, he's, he's slick. But we leave them alone for a while to move on to the next obscene phone call, which goes to Kelly, played by Mary Beth Rubens. To Kelly, he says, it's been a long time. Tonight, it's my turn. Again, no real indication of what he's talking about, but she does look genuinely freaked out because she's Kelly and she's freaked out by a lot of things. She has grown up to be a very nervous and somewhat humorless person who always looks like she's pouting about something. I really like her. <laughs> she also has some of my favorite clothes in the film. I think Kelly's wardrobe is just gorgeous. Not long after she gets the phone call, we meet my least favorite character in the film, Kelly's boyfriend, Drew. When seeing these two together upon their first interaction, um, we immediately establish two things. Kelly is a nervous wreck and Drew is sexually frustrated. Those are really the two things you need to know about these characters. Moving on from Kelly and Drew, we now move to Nick's house. High school Nick is played by Casey Stevens, who has just some phenomenal hair. Can we just take a second to appreciate Casey Stevens' hair? And as the phone rings at Nick's house, he and his father, played by George Tuliados, I think is how you pronounce his last name, are actually on their way out. And Nick just tells him not to answer the phone. Don't worry about it. Um, and this is where, when I mentioned earlier how there were some really great strengths with the writing, one of the writing's greatest strengths is that they, they are able to bury the exposition in what sounds like very natural, everyday dialogue. I felt that William Gray did a really good job of that. And we learn as they're leaving that Nick used to date Wendy. He is now dating Kim. Uh, and Wendy still believes that she and Nick are going to the prom together. I feel ever conflicted about the character of Nick because he was a part of what happened to Robin. 
He was a garbage child, just like the rest of them. And he's also now somehow managed to fall in love with Robin's older sister, who clearly does not know. I mean, obviously she doesn't know that any of these people were involved in Robin's death. And his father is Lieutenant McBride, who is a police officer that is heavily involved in the ongoing investigation of Robin's death and a little obsessed with the guy that he thinks killed Robin, Leonard Murch, who we'll learn a little bit more about in a second. And so Nick spends an inordinate amount of time with two people in particular who were deeply and profoundly affected by Robin's death and who are still very disturbed by the mystery of it. And he doesn't tell them. But at the same time, I kind of get it. He, he's scared, especially because this is not, these are not just two random people. These are his father and the girl that he loves. So, and, he, and he's charming and funny and he seems very kind. And we definitely see how distraught he is. I, I'm, I'm really torn about his character. Part of me really likes him and part of me thinks that he's just awful. But he is a really good dancer. That, that I'm sure of. So the killer is agitated because he couldn't get a hold of Nick, which makes sense because as we know, the killer is Alex, who only has a very short, very limited period of time where he can taunt these people over the phone given that he's already at school and this is the day of prom. So he's kind of pressed for time here. So there's only one name left. And that name is Wendy. But we don't see Wendy just yet. Instead, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the life of Lieutenant McBride, Nick's father. We get quite a bit of exposition via flashback about Leonard Murch, about the guy that he is convinced killed Robin. There's a psychiatrist that visits McBride's office, and the two of them talk a little bit about the fact that Leonard Murch has recently escaped from the hospital. The writers really want you to believe that Leonard Murch is the killer. So we leave McBride to his crime obsession, and now... As the killer saved the best for last, we see Wendy. Uh, High school Wendy is played by Anne-Marie Martin, and she's sitting at a vanity mirror in her bedroom, daintily dabbing on some perfume and being fabulous. This was actually Anne-Marie Martin's feature film debut, and I think that she is just a spectacular villain. She's rocking the side ponytail and this permanent expression that at once says she's mildly amused, but also seconds away from punching you in the face. Uh, and her makeup, which is minimal, is, is sharper and more angular than Kim's. Her clothes are much bolder in color, and I sincerely hope that those things were not done by accident. Wendy is Kim's rival, and they really set that up well with this introduction. Uh, When her phone rings, she decides to have a little fun with who she thinks is Nick and lets it ring a little longer, you know, to get his motor running, Um, which I think is really cute. She's just very amused with herself. Uh, This time, the killer asks her if she still likes to play games. And much like Jude, she immediately writes the call off, assuming that it's a guy named Lou who we'll meet in a few minutes. Uh, She hangs up and heads downstairs, where she's greeted by someone who is either her grandmother or her house keeper. We never really find out which. Just an elderly woman who asks if she'll be home for dinner, and Wendy gives this snide, apathetic response. And so right away, we're told to dislike Wendy. Not just because she was the one who insisted on covering up Robin's death, but also because she's rich and rude to the help. She also has a really nice car, which also in the 80s was usually an indication of uh, either a recent makeover or villainy. But so now all of the kids have been called and blown the calls off and the school day of the prom can finally begin. We see a few shots of kids being kids at their lockers and Kelly fending off more sexual advances from Drew. And just down the hall from Kelly and Drew, we see Lou, a shaggy haired, greasy looking guy with an epic unibrow who looks at least 10 years too old to be in high school. And and that's actually being generous. He really looks like he's about 40 years old and he's just casually smoking a cigarette right there in the hallway, which may have been a thing that kids could do in high schools in the early 80s, but I'm going to say it probably wasn't. 
I mean, he's standing by and eavesdropping as Kim, Jude, and another girl, Vicky, walk down the hall. It's at this point that we get the impression that Kim is close with Jude and not close with Wendy. Jude announces that she's going to prom with Slick, of course, and they scream and hug her and all that good high school happiness stuff. Meanwhile, Lou decides to join the conversation by sauntering up with his, like, giant chest all puffed out and puts his arm around Kim's waist. Now I know why Kim won't go out with me. She likes girls. It's better than kissing an ashtray. Lou continues to kind of hit on all of them collectively as they walk away, and we get a shot of Kelly and Drew in the background, Drew still making unwanted sexual advances. This time, Kelly is so desperate to get away from him that she slams herself against the lockers, trying to get out from under his arms. And that moment is funny, but on a more serious note, Kelly's character is also the one to which I personally relate the most strongly uh, and feel really terrible for. I feel for you, Kelly. I really do. We continue down the hallway and we see Wendy has kind of pinned Nick up against a locker. And when Kim says hello to Nick, Wendy whips around, glares at Kim, turns back and aggressively kisses Nick, then does this kind of dramatic turn and says, see you later, lover. And then she walks away and Nick immediately is like, I told her it was over. The girls crack up and run down the hall shouting, women in love, coming through. It's, it's really cute. But the excitement is interrupted by a return to the abandoned building where Robin died six years previously, where someone has discovered the dead body of a young woman, not nearly as young as Robin was. This woman was old enough to drive at least. And uh, the lieutenant immediately asks the cops on the scene about Leonard Murch. There's a lot more discussion about Murch here, but it's your garden variety, like let's not tell the public yet. We don't want to panic on our hands cop talk that doesn't really mean much at all to the main story except as a distraction and I can't really focus too much time and attention on it because Kim is about to practice her disco dance moves back at school and get a bucket of snark from Wendy so we're gonna move on to that. I haven't encountered a lot of people in my life that just outright hated this movie but the majority of the arguments I've heard against it a lot of them have to do with the dance scenes, saying that the film is trying too hard to cash in on the popularity of Saturday Night Fever, which was released in 1977, and that the dancing comes across as cheesy and unnecessary. But I honestly couldn't disagree more with the latter. I have no doubt that they were trying to cash in on the popularity of Saturday Night Fever, absolutely. But as far as whether or not the dancing is cheesy or unnecessary, I, I just completely disagree. This is a prom movie, and the prom is taking place in 1980, just three years after the release of of Saturday Night Fever. And in this universe, I assume that that movie exists. So of course the kids would want to bust out their best disco dance moves. When we cut back to the school, we see Kim in the empty gym testing out a couple of dance moves and she's quickly interrupted by Wendy, who's for some reason creeping around on the stage and has access to a working spotlight. Uh, she shines it on Kim and the two of them engage in a battle of sarcasm and veiled insults. That makes me really happy because they're both playing it up really well. You are keeping in mind that after tonight is all over, everything's going to be back to normal. I mean, Nick is king of the prom and you just happen to be queen of the prom. But that's as far as it goes. Next, we see the killer tearing pictures of the kids out of a yearbook. And then we're in the cafeteria during lunch. Lou walks up behind Kim in a fucking ski mask for some reason. Maybe he just had it in his locker. I don't know. But he's wearing a, a black ski mask and he asks her if she likes him better now that he's wearing it. But we don't really get to find out exactly how Kim feels about it because he just gets really rapey with her right there in the lunch line, after which Alex runs up and attacks him in Kim's defense. Uh, a couple of Lou's friends jump in and a bunch of punches are thrown until the fight is broken up and Lou and Alex get sent to the principal's office, uh, which of course, as we know, is Alex's dad. Now on the way to the principal's office, Lou 
passes by Wendy, who stops him and asks if she can talk to him. What she wants to talk to him about is she wants him to go to the prom with her. Now, what the fuck? What is Wendy thinking? I mean, she's beautiful, for one thing. We know she's, she's got money. And she was clearly popular at one point in her life. I mean, given the attitude. Why in the world would she ask Lou, of all people, to go to the prom with her when it finally sinks in that Nick is going with Kim? Like, I get that she has sort of a plan. And so maybe she just knew that Lou was probably the one person she wouldn't really have to work that hard to convince to be a part of this plan. But at the same time, I mean... If part of the goal is also to kind of rub it in your ex-boyfriend's face that he didn't take you to the prom, you don't show up with a guy like Lou. I saw tons of handsome, presumably eligible teenagers in the background during the hallway and cafeteria scenes. Surely there was one other guy at Hamilton High School that would be willing or afraid enough of Wendy to go to the prom with her without having to resort to the single most embarrassing and frustrating date in human history. <laughs> I mean, maybe there really was nobody else left without a date, but, but still, the guy's a golem. I think it would have been better if she just drove out to a shopping center somewhere and just paid someone to go with her. I cannot express how much it bugs me that she goes to the prom with Lou. <laughs> Anyway, Lou and Alex go to the principal's office and Lou gets a serious talking to that ends with him being suspended, which is probably for the best considering that he's like 40 years old and he should really just, you know, go out and get a job. We cut to yet still more of Lieutenant McBride's struggle to solve the mystery of Leonard Murch. And when we cut back to the school again, we now see Kim and Nick taking a romantic stroll along a woodsy seaside cliff, which turns out to be like the side lawn to their high school. So I definitely grew up in the wrong part of the country. <laughs> Kim confesses to Nick that she's feeling conflicted about the prom because while it's a great day, it's also a very sad day as it is the anniversary of Robin's death. Nick tells Kim that he loves her and then actually kind of indirectly confesses a little bit of his involvement in Robin's death, saying that he remembers it happening and that he's always been really sorry about it. He also looks and sounds as though he is right on the verge of directly confessing, but the bell rings and Kim hurries off to class and then Nick's beautiful hair blows solemnly in the seaside wind. So now we're with Wendy on her lunch break and she's taken Lou to a drive-in burger joint. He tries to order a beer because he's 40 and he's used to ordering beer when he goes out to places. Um, and then they start talking about the, the plan that they have for prom night. We don't get any details about it, but we know that something is in motion. Wendy tells him that she doesn't want anyone to get hurt, and Lou tells her he's got it covered, and then he hugs her. And Wendy just looks really unhappy. That expression she has on her face when Lou hugs her suggests to me that she just wishes none of this was happening at all. And that's that's Anne-Marie Martin. She really just, she plays Wendy very well. I really, ugh. I, lo I love the performances in this movie overall. I think almost everybody did just a wonderful job. And then we cut back to the school where we see some of the girls playing tennis, presumably in PE class. We get to see a second scene with Mr. Sykes, who for some reason Vicky moons? Like, why Vicky? I couldn't tell if this was a bullying thing or if she was actually trying to throw the guy a bone. <laughs> no pun intended. But either way, she gets into trouble, uh, naturally, and Mr. Sykes watches Kim with his tongue hanging out while she walks away. He's not watching Vicky, who just flashed him her ass and is now being escorted in the opposite direction. No, he's watching Kim. That was actually pretty creepy. I was creeped out by that. It wouldn't be a high school horror movie without at least one scene in the girls' locker room. Kim and Kelly are finishing up a post-tennis shower, talking about Kelly's lack of a 
sex life and her fears about sleeping and not sleeping with Drew. And on the other side of the locker room, Wendy, who is there for some reason, I guess she came to the locker room after having lunch with Lou. I don't think she was playing tennis. I didn't see her there. Uh, For some reason, she's also in the locker room. And she opens her locker and finds a yearbook picture, the one that we saw the killer tearing out of the yearbook, taped to the inside of her locker. This was a weird thing for the killer to do as well because the yearbook photo is a current one. It's not like a photo of Wendy when she was 11 or 12. It's, it's, It's like a photo of Wendy now. And it isn't even covered in fake blood or defaced really in any way. It's just a little bit torn. It doesn't in any way seem like a threat and it doesn't relate at all back to Robin's death. But despite the silly nature of the photo, Wendy gets really mad about it and tells everyone in the locker room that they're all idiots and then storms out. Kim and Kelly shake it off pretty quickly and commence with their sex talk. And then suddenly a bunch of glass breaking nearby stops their conversation in its tracks and leads them into a different section of the locker room uh, where a big mirror looks like it was repeatedly struck by a blunt object. So the girls step outside to investigate and see if they can catch a glimpse of the the mirror smasher running away. And we get one of the more iconic images from the film, which is of Jamie Lee Curtis wearing an open shirt over a very flattering bra, leaning out of the door with Kelly next to her in a way that kind of reminds me of Scooby-Doo. You know, how the characters' heads would like pop out, stacked up on top of each other. Uh, The girls don't see anyone, so they go back inside. And then they notice that one of the smashed mirrors has a little shard of, of mirror Missing. We do see Mr. Sykes in the hallway and Kim stops and kind of eyes him suspiciously, but he just keeps fixing the overhead light because he's not just a red herring, he's also the janitor. I nitpick and I realize I'm nitpicking, um, but Prom Night is not the only film to use a school janitor as a red herring in a poor way. Urban Legend from 1998 also did this, although the role of the janitor in that film was played by Julian Richings and so I was just so happy to see him. I, I didn't even really care that he was an obvious misdirect. Side note, Julian Richings janitor in Urban Legend. His name in the credits was literally just weird janitor. (laughs) But anyway, moving on from creepy janitors who writers really want you to think are killers, we now go to the gym for the rehearsal of the prom's main event, the king and queen walking out on stage. One of the teachers during this rehearsal refers to Kim as the literary Miss Hammond. And I'm not sure what that means. And it really bugs me. Did she have a side story about being a writer? Was she really good at English in an earlier version of the script? Is she not actually real? This raises so many questions in my head. Why is Kim literary? Why did you use that adjective? What does it all mean? Anyway, uh, another teacher leads the kids through the rehearsal. Alex takes a break from his audiovisual duties and stands in for his dad. And we learn from the muddled voice coming through the PA system that Kim is an athlete and head of the dance club, which doesn't clarify anything at all regarding the teacher's comment about her being literary. We also learn that Nick is president of the Key Club. And I didn't know what a Key Club was, so I looked it up. Key Club International is a global service organization that helps raise money for humanitarian efforts, among many other things. And in schools, the clubs are student-run and geared toward building leadership skills and performing smaller-scale community service. There are thousands of clubs, like, all over the world. I, I really do live under a rock. Either way, the, the, the rehearsal goes off without a hitch. We get more shots of Kim walking alone in the hallways, looking generally creeped out. Clearly, the incident in the locker room shook her up, and I buy that. I think this movie is so interesting. It really... Because Kim isn't actually an intended victim here at all. She doesn't get phone calls or taunting yearbook photos. She was in no way involved in Robin's death, unless you consider it involvement by neglect, you know, 
she did run back to school to get her geography book. She's not actually someone the killer is trying to terrorize, but she's friends with the people who are. So she's getting scared and she's involved kind of by proxy. And I, I don't know, I find that really interesting. If anybody out there is listening to this and you've listened this far, if you know of another horror film where the I'm, I'm going to say qu the quote unquote final girl, which I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, here in a bit about whether or not there is actually a final girl in the film. It, I think it depends on your definition of final girl. But is there another movie that you can think of where the final girl in the film is not actually an intended victim of the killer? I, I would really be interested to know what other films out there are like this one in that sense, because I, I just find that very interesting. We also see Jude at her locker and the killer finally does something that makes sense to me. Jude notices that her locker has been left open and when she opens it, she finds her yearbook photo with a shard of mirror taped to it. I wish that all of the pictures taped up inside the lockers had had shards of mirror taped to them. I think that was very cool. I would definitely like to have seen more of that. Kelly shows up next to Jude holding a photo as well, but there's no mirror shard on hers. And then this is followed by a couple more quick scenes of detectives detecting, or trying to detect at least. And then school's out for pre-prom. We see Kim putting her makeup on at home. Her mom walks into her bedroom disoriented and flustered, and she seems to have misplaced the lipstick that she'd wanted to wear. And we get to see more of, of her grief. And I feel like Antoinette Bauer plays devastated and emotionally checked out really well in this film. There are already so many stories going on in this film. I, I really do understand why they didn't focus more on her, but God, she just made the mother so interesting. Kim's reaction to her mom is a very moving one. I just feel like they really hit the nail on the head in this film with what this family went through and how it was just torn to shreds by Robin's death. Mr. and Mrs. Hammond head out for the prom uh, and we see them from the lawn next door. Uh, we get a sort of almost POV shot, not quite POV, but almost. Uh, somebody is watching them. This mystery person watches quietly for a second and then gets out of a car and stops to stare at the Hammond house for a few seconds. This is a rare scene here, uh, it was for me anyway, in that it actually did make me question who I thought the killer was for a second my first time through. So I was excited. Their determination to make me second guess myself and finally it paid off a little bit with that moment. Alas, it is not the killer. Uh, it's Nick who has come to pick up Kim for the prom. Uh, and Kim's inside getting ready and she's wearing a dress that doesn't seem all that impressive at first. It's very shapeless and kind of a grandma pink color. I, I mean that with all due respect to grandmas and also the color pink. I, I like both of those things. It has a very elderly woman powder room pink thing going on that looks very strange on like a 17, 18 year old girl. But once she gets actually to the prom and the top half of the dress, which is sort of like a kind of shrug comes off, the dress gets real sexy real quick. While she's getting ready, she and Alex exchange some very cute brother sister banter. Would you get the doll for me, sir? Yes, my lady. Oh, thank you, sir. I mentioned earlier the chemistry that these two actors have, and, and I, I feel like it's reinforced in this scene. They're just, they're really believable as, as two people who have known each other their whole lives. And it also kind of reminds us that Alex is a sweet kid. He really is. He cares about his family. There's a lot of love there, and they, they just convey it very well, both through the writing and also the acting. It just all, there's a lot of love. Alex goes to answer the door and then Nick is waiting in the living room, which this has to be also very painful for Alex. He knows that Nick was involved in Robin's death and he knows 
that Kim doesn't know that. Again, this goes back to me sort of being conflicted about both Nick and, and Alex. I'm conflicted about both of these characters. Alex knows who killed his, his sister and he's watching his entire family just fall apart in slow motion as a result of it, at least his mother anyway, and his father just tearing himself apart. He could very easily have ended their pain at any moment, at any time, and he chose not to. I get it. I, I get that he's mentally unwell and that's why it's happening so trying to find additional motive for like not telling his family what really happened i mean he could have just told his family what really happened the day that it happened you know but then we wouldn't have a movie so shut up molly okay now before i go any further i actually just want to talk about the dresses because it's a prom film i can't talk about a prom film without talking about the prom dresses um we've covered kim's and now we're gonna move on to wendy's wendy's dress is beautiful and it's bold cherry red with sequins along the bust and it was just such an excellent choice i really like the contrast in how they dressed wendy and how they dressed kim i i felt that they really kept that going here with these dresses what wendy's it's very showy and it's very sexy in an overt way it's the perfect dress for the rival girl who will stop at nothing to get revenge and when we first see wendy in her dress she's impatiently waiting on her sofa for lou and smoking a cigarette her hair also just looks so fantastic it is by far the best hair in the film even better than nick's hair which i would have thought was impossible but but it's not <laughs> wendy's dress also comes with a matching sequin shawl that accessorizes it very well kelly is dressed appropriately in a clean white dress to further hammer home her purity though she does have a, a flower in her hair that kind of gives her a slightly exotic look which i thought was a really nice choice jude is sporting a simple purple number with a matching flower bag and slick her date uh, looks dapper AF in a tux with ruffles and a giant black bow tie. It's so great. <laughs> he, he looks he looks awesome. And although Vicky isn't really a part of the gang from the first part of the film, I have to take a second to appreciate the fancier version of her everyday side ponytail because it's it's wonderful. Just five stars all around to the wardrobe department. When Lou shows up to pick Wendy up, he's not even wearing a tux and he has two of his friends in the backseat of the car. Wendy, of course, is instantly regretting all of her life choices, but Lou's two friends, they're both wearing t-shirts with tuxedo print. You know, they're wearing just tuxedo t-shirts which i love it made me want to look up the tuxedo t-shirt to find out just how far back in history it goes and it seems like it was invented sometime in the mid 70s after that we we cut to a series of some really nice interior shots of the empty parts of the school and this is where the film switches gears it switches over into the kill by numbers portion of the movie and you can really feel that that's about to happen the gymnasium of the school is far from empty as promised is already in full swing with a lighted dance floor and accompanying disco balls. The music isn't amazing, but that's mostly because the producers couldn't afford to include any actual popular disco songs of the era. So Paul Zaza was given like a week to make his own songs that were as close to the hits of the time as was legally possible and he wrote all of the songs in five days. So I, I think it's a very forgivable offense that the music is not just mind-blowing. Where we can be 
Kim is dancing with her dad and they have kind of a kind of a sad exchange about Kim's mother. They have a nice solemn but also nice conversation and, and a couple of cute father-daughter moments. When Lou and Wendy show up, it's a very kind of epic entry. Uh, in fact, like Kim's mom actually stops what she's doing to watch them walk in. And it, it doesn't hurt anything that they are backed by the Tuxedo Twins and they do. They just look like they're in a little gang. As soon as they walk in, Kim goes into immediate eat your heart out mode and runs and grabs Nick and we finally get to see some of Nick's famous dance moves like I don't know if I stress this enough but like Nick being a good dancer is something that's really hinted at quite a lot leading up to this moment this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie everybody clears the dance floor of course and lets the prom and disco king and queen do their thing yes it is a long scene and yes, it feels very flashy and reminds us that we're watching a movie, but damn it, it is so much fun to watch these two dance. They both are just solid dancers and they seem to be having a really good time. Oh, also uh, Lieutenant McBride is, is here as well, making phone calls out in the hallway and looking surly, still searching for Leonard merch. At some point, the girls all retire to the bathroom, except for Wendy, of course, who's still presumably just leering around the gym with Lou and the Tuxedo Twins. And a pretty realistic, albeit maddening conversation ensues regarding Kelly remaining reluctance to give up her virginity. Kelly is just very quietly panicking through this entire film and it gets more and more intense. Now we are really getting down to the horror in this horror movie, starting with Kelly and Drew. Kelly went and found Drew and the two sneak into the boys' showers because how much more romantic can you get for your first time? And things get naked and sexy pretty quickly, but Kelly just, she, she keeps getting more and more scared until she finally stops him and says that she just can't do it. And that's when Drew's true colors shine through. He tells her that if she won't sleep with him, he knows plenty of girls who will, and he leaves her alone in the shower. Kelly gets angry and then yells after him, but then digresses back into just like sad and, and you know, says, you'll be back. I would feel a little more sad about her not really learning anything from this experience if it mattered, but it doesn't because... She's about to die. <laughs> She's crying and she puts her clothes back on. And um, as she does this, a dark figure creeps up behind her and we get to see the first of the revenge killings. He grabs her from behind with his hand over her mouth and then he whispers. then he slits her throat with a shard of glass. It's presumably the one that was missing from the mirror in the girl's locker room. We don't see the point of impact, just her reaction from the chin up and then the aftermath. Kelly lying dead on the floor with blood on her teeth. This is also where we see that the killer is wearing a black ski mask. Whether or not it is the one worn by Lou in the cafeteria, I don't know but it looks exactly like it. And he's also wearing an all black outfit and black gloves. Back in the gym, Drew has already moved on with a random girl. Wendy's sitting at a table with Nick, making him very noticeably uncomfortable by continuing to not take no for an answer. And Kim sees them and storms out of the gym. But we don't really get to see where that goes because Jude and Slick have left the prom all together to have good old fashioned prom night sex in the back of Slick's creepy van. <laughs> Yay! They talk for a little while, both admitting that they were virgins before tonight. And then Jude suggests that they go out to the bluffs and have slightly more dangerous sex. Why don't we do it on the bluff? On the bluffs? Come on, it'll be fantastic. Wow! <laughs> 
They put a blanket down on the ground by the cliff, and they don't get too far into their second round before a twig snaps somewhere nearby, and Slick says he wants to go back, because he's not actually in the horror movie. I mean, he is, but he's not really a part of it, so he's smart, and he doesn't want to stay out there where clearly there's somebody skulking around the woods. So they go back to the van, and that's where we learn that Seymour has about 500 pre-rolled joints hidden in a hollowed-out history book. They smoke together, and Jude tells him she'll remember this night for the rest of her life, which is true, as the rest of her life turns out to be just like 10 seconds. Uh, the back doors of the van come swinging open and Jude falls out head first and the killer stabs her a few times, whisper shouting, and Slick lunges forward and punches him in the face because he's a rock star before hopping to the front of the van to drive away. The killer runs around the driver's side and latches himself onto the van for a pretty lengthy wheelie car fight that leads to Slick going over the bluffs and the car exploding. Evidently that van or one of those vans, I, I don't know the actual details of this, but evidently one of the vans used for the car exploding scene was actually stolen by the stunt coordinator. I thought that was kind of funny. So Alex kills Seymour, but lets Drew live. If Alex was in it for justice, it would have been the other way around. I'm so sad that Seymour died. It was a very sad moment, especially because Jude and Slick had just this really great sort of whirlwind prom night relationship. And Jude did seem like a very sweet girl. What we learn here is that it really doesn't matter to Alex as long as Robin's death is avenged. Rest in peace, Seymour and Jude but particularly Seymour, I miss you already. We get back to the gym and the prom is still going strong. We get a somewhat like befuddling shot of Mr. Sykes taking a swig of some kind of liquor and he looks really like disturbed and out of breath, which I think is supposed to suggest that maybe he just narrowly escaped death by car explosion. But since he wasn't actually there, we know that it's Alex. Why does he look like this? The next time that we see Mr. Sykes kind of answers this question, I think that he just found Kelly's body in the locker room. Why he doesn't say something right away I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to ruin prom night for everyone. Maybe he was looking for a specific adult on the premises and he couldn't find them. I don't know. But that's my theory is that that's why he was drinking heavily at that moment and looking around very confused and disturbed. I think that he had just discovered Kelly's body. Either way, back to prom. Wendy and Lou have had, not surprisingly, a falling out, and so she's gone to the bathroom to touch up her makeup. And then the lights go out, and she thinks for a second that it might be Lou trolling her, but suddenly the killer appears with yet another creepy whisper scream and an ax this time. Kelly had a pretty standard death. Jude, he had to get a little creative. Slick, obviously, that was very, that was heavily improvised. And now, now we have Wendy. He tries to bring the ax down on Wendy's head, and we actually get to see the part that Jamie Lee Curtis normally plays, taken over by Anne-Marie for a little while. It's, it's really interesting to me, because as I previously mentioned, Kim isn't really a final girl in this film. If we're defining a final girl as the last girl in the film to confront the killer and live to tell the tale, then yes, Kim could be considered a final girl. But because the killer never had any intention of hurting Kim because he, she was never actually in any real danger. Should she be considered a final girl? Obviously, Wendy isn't a final girl because she dies, but we get a lot of what I feel is like a really great final girl performance from Anne-Marie Martin. It's great, but we know that she can't survive. She, ha she has to die harder than anyone else because she was the worst. We like her the least, you know? So we get a very nice, long Wendy hunt that harkens back to the game of high stakes hide and seek that the kids were playing in the beginning. I really like this whole concept so much. I like it so much that I really wish they had done something a little more elaborate with it because the fact that the killer and Wendy are now engaged in an actual high stakes version of the game that, that 
led to Robin's death. It's just, it's very brilliant. And I love the way that it plays out. The majority of this is set to the muffled original disco music booming out of the gym, which actually kind of makes it scarier to me because it reminds us that Sanctuary for Wendy is just a short sprint away, but she never finds it, you know? She runs up the stairs instead because she, she doesn't know the rules. The lighting is very dark and deep red and the chase goes on for a long time, but not in a bad way. It goes on for like just the right amount of time. She hides in a classroom and it really looks like she's gonna get away, but then she backs up into an anatomy dummy, bringing the killer right to her. Then she runs back downstairs and into a shop class where she hides in one of the cars that the students are working on. And I actually think that that was really smart, except for all the fucking noise she makes. So the killer comes into the shop class and I think immediately suspects that she might have hidden in a car. So he slinks around and eventually finds the one that she's lying face down in. He tries to open the door, which I personally find funny because he has an ax in his hand. He does realize that he has an ax in his hand after a couple of seconds of trying to, to open the locked door. So he smashes in the window and sends Wendy running out the other side. She gets away again, and this time she hides in the janitor's closet. We see a shot of her here, which is one of my favorite shots in the film and just one of my favorite types of shots in horror films in general. She's disheveled, terrified. In this case, uh, her mascara is running and she has her back up against the door in the corner, looking toward the door out of the corner of her eye. It's a really great composition, and I'm just so glad that it happens a lot in horror. It seems like nothing's happening outside the door, so Wendy allows herself a moment. She breaks down crying out loud for a few seconds. We see like a couple of quick shots of like a pool of blood dripping randomly in, in what turns out to be the closet that Wendy's in. It's very, it's very a weird shot. And then suddenly Kelly's body drops down onto a shelf in front of Wendy, which raises like even more questions. She screams again, which brings the killer back to her for the last time. She runs out of the closet and runs right into him. The screen goes black and we hear him chopping her up with the ax. Right after Wendy's death, McBride receives a phone call that Leonard Murch was picked up uh, 50 miles away. Leonard Murch is now gonna be back behind bars, so he's like super happy. Like McBride is a new man. And, uh, and Mr. Sykes shows up in the gym very drunk and tries to warn everyone that there's a killer on the loose, which is why I kind of believe that the last time we saw him, he had just discovered Kelly's body. His warnings are written off by actually, ironically, Lieutenant McBride, because he's just so happy because Leonard Murch has been caught. And he he has not considered any alternative because he's a bad detective. <laughs> In any case, with Wendy out of the way, there's only one kid left who was there when Robin died, and that is the Disco King. Kim and Nick go backstage and they put their crowns on um, and then they head to their respective spots on either side of the stage behind the curtain. The killer is also back here now, presumably looking for Nick. But before he can get to him, Lou and the tuxedo twin grab Nick and they drag him out of the way and put tape over his mouth. And then Lou backhands him with this like, it was such a weird bit of Foley because it's like a sharp slapping sound, but it somehow knocks Nick out. Lou steals Nick's jacket and crown. And now it kind of becomes clear that the plan he and Wendy made was for them to switch places with Nick and Kim. Uh, but the joke's on him, of course, because now the killer thinks that Lou is Nick. The dance music stops and the processional music starts. So Alex, he seems to like want to make a particular show of Nick's death. So he just creeps right up behind the guy he thinks is Nick right before the curtain opens. And it's definitely my favorite kill in the movie, not only because 
he chops his head clean off with the axe, but the axe slams right into the wires that are hooked up to both the sound and light systems, electrocuting Alex. And as the MC is announcing the king and queen, the dance music and floor lights kick back on again, the latter illuminating Lou's newly severed head, which has landed perfectly face up in the middle of the catwalk. We get a close-up shot of his head resting in a pool of blood. The strobe lights are going crazy around it. I actually think it's one of the more memorable moments in any horror movie that I have ever seen. Everything about that kill is perfection. Everybody, of course, sees Lou's head and panic sweeps through the gymnasium. Everyone runs out except Kim, who was actually really far away from the stage area for some reason, and she runs back onto the stage looking for Nick. Nick's having a pretty hard time walking, so Kim does her best to help carry him out, but the killer heads them off at the exit. And then another cool scene plays out where both Nick and Kim kind of take turns fending him off on the dance floor. One might say it's almost a dance itself. The killer continues continually ignores Kim, sort of tossing her away from him. It's obvious that the only thing he cares about is killing Nick. He very nearly succeeds too. He resorts to just like strangling him at one point, but Kim picks up the axe that was wrestled away from him and hits him really hard over the head with what I think is the blunt side. It's a little unclear, but I'm, I'm pretty certain she hits him really hard on the side of the head with the blunt side of the axe. And Alex standing up and sort of stumbles around and turns to Kim and Nick. And he looks directly at Kim. And even though he's wearing a ski mask and there is quite a few feet between them and they're in this dark gymnasium with all the flashing lights. She recognizes him immediately by his eyes. They make this direct long eye contact and she knows instantly that it's her brother. Alex turns and runs away, but God, that moment, we've come to the finale of the film. There are police sirens wailing outside of the school and Alex stumbles out of the front door, still trying to shake off the blow to the head. And we see some shaky shots of Robin's death mixed with the crowd from the prom. It creates a really nice downward spiral effect. And in the midst of this, Lieutenant McBride shows up and the crowd kind of parts and, and McBride has a gun trained on Alex. Kim just immediately like runs to try to protect him, but it doesn't matter because the blow that Alex received to the head, it, it's done him in. It has hurt him very, very badly and he just can't walk anymore. So he falls to the ground. Kim runs to him and gathers him up in her arms and takes off his mask. And he confesses that he saw Robin fall through the window and die and knew that the kids had run away. You know, they, he confesses that he knew. He knew what happened to Robin. And then he calls out Robin's name and he sobs as he dies in Kim's arms. Going back to uh, something that I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of other films that do a much better job of messing with your mind regarding the identity of the killer. This one is not a spectacular mystery, but it was a really satisfying reveal. When she pulls off his mask and we see that it's Alex and seeing how broken he was and how sad, and Prom Night is well known for having a sympathetic killer, and I think it definitely deserves that reputation. Alex is a sweet kid who lost his twin sister in a supposed accident and no one was ever brought to justice for that. So he's a lot easier to understand and to sympathize with than a lot of typical slasher film villains. Moreover, a lot of other slasher films that feature revenge motives often take the killer so far off the rails on the road to revenge that it's almost impossible to feel sorry for them in the end. I still stand by that if he knew that the kids were responsible for Robin's death, he should have told them right away. 
but we wouldn't have gotten the movie and I'm really glad we got the movie. Prom Night is such a fun slasher film. Every time I watch it, I like it more than I did the last time. Despite all of those comparisons that are made to other films, I really think Prom Night is, as I said in the beginning, it's its own film. There were three sequels to Prom Night spanning from 1987 to 1992 and I personally think that all of them are entertaining. That's not something that I can say about a lot of films. I like all of the sequels to this movie. A remake of the film was released in 2008, but it, it was a completely different movie. The only thing that the original and the remake have in common is that they both take place around prom night. I don't think the remake should even be called a remake. It should have just had a different title. It's also just a really bad movie. Other horror movies that take place on or around prom night include The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, The Loved Ones, obviously Carrie. And when I searched for movies with a prom theme to refresh my memory, I saw quite a few sites list Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a prom film. I'm here to tell you, it is not. It is not a prom movie. Do not believe the hype. The dance that they have in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie is referred to throughout the film as the senior dance, or simply the dance. And Kimberly tries to impress upon Buffy the importance of that dance by saying, that it's the last dance of their last year, but Nikki quickly corrects her, going down a list of all the other dances that they'll be having before the year ends, and the last one on that list is the prom. If you use the word prom loosely to mean any senior dance, then sure, Buffy is a prom movie. Otherwise, nope, it ain't the prom. Does the word duh mean anything to you? Before I wrap things up all together, it's time for our brand new segment, Senior Class Superlative. Tonight's class superlatives are brought to you in memory of Seymour Crane, a.k.a. Slick and his mostly windowless van. What, uh, what was that? What was what? Somebody's out there. First up, the honor of best dressed goes to... Wendy. Wendy was truly dressed as though she knew that she was one of the villains in this horror movie. She rocked it. She rocked the, the bold colors. She had that fantastic sequin dress with the matching shawl for the prom. And her hair beat Nick's hair for best hair in film. So it was Wendy no contest. The next honor of cutest couple goes to Jude and Slick. I was so heartbroken that their love and their lives were torn asunder so very quickly. I'm glad that they got to have a little bit of time together at the prom and a lot of time together afterward before Alex showed up and ruined everything. Our third honor of the evening, most likely to succeed, goes to Kim Hammond, who survived the film, which makes her and Nick, by default, uh, you know, most likely to succeed, because they're still alive to succeed at things. And our last honor of the night, most likely to come back as a ghost and haunt the school, definitely Kelly. Kelly had suffered so much before her actual death. I mean, there's no way that she's not going to come back as a ghost. And while she's haunting the school, I suspect she will still be looking for Drew because she learned absolutely nothing. Drew, you bastard! To all you horror fans out there, I pose the question, did you go to your senior prom? Was it scary? Tell me about your senior prom experience by emailing me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you're like me and you didn't go to prom, feel free to just tell me about your thoughts on prom night. I would love to hear them. Did I say something about the film that pissed you off? 
or something that you really agreed with? Did I forget to mention something about the film? Just hit me up. Send me an email. Don't forget to include your name or a name that you would be comfortable uh, having shared on this audio blog, as well as where you're from, and put the word confessions in the subject line, if you can remember. If I actually get like a handful of listeners and I start getting emails, I would really like to read them aloud uh, in future entries and just keep these conversations going so that I'm not just talking to myself. In addition to answering prom-related questions, I could also really use some feedback. As I've said in previous entries, I'm, I'm still pretty new to this. If this sort of like single film analysis thing is something that you would like to hear more of, please let me know. Or if it sucked, pl- please let me know that too. <laughs> With that, I am going to make some tea and uh, probably watch a scary movie. Until next time, creep it real. <laughs>